Chapter 2 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 Begins Teaching in Boston. For several years after the experiment with the child's school in Worcester in 1816-17, to Miss Dix appears to have lived with her grandmother in Boston, her leisure devoted to carrying on her own studies and preparation for opening a school for older pupils. Though then but a town of 40,000 inhabitants, Boston was already giving signs of an intellectual ferment in theology, philanthropy, philosophy, and literature, which was to inaugurate a new epoch in the spiritual history of New England. The day of provincialism was passing away. Higher ideals of God and of human destiny were breaking in, and young and ardent minds, emancipating themselves from the cramping traditions of the past, already felt that the long, weary sojourn in the wilderness was over, and that, standing at last on Pisgah, they could overlook a veritable land of promise. None entered more earnestly into certain phases of the spiritual rebirth or hailed more rapturously its prophets of the type of Channing than did mystics. Not probably before the year 1821 did she resume the actual work of teaching, beginning with classes of day pupils in a little house of her grandmother's in Orange Court, and only by degrees, raising the standard till the modest beginning finally developed into a combined boarding and day school in the Dix mansion itself, to which children were sent from the most prominent families in Boston, as well as from towns as far away as then was Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Later on, she was to have her younger brothers with her under the same roof, and was to become practical mistress of the Dix mansion. The increasing infirmities of the grandmother now kept her largely confined to her own room, and added care of no slight nature. Thus, by degrees, were devolved upon the never-strong young woman the duties of housekeeper, teacher, motherly elder sister, and matron of the boarding pupils, together with the necessity of carrying on her own as yet imperfect intellectual training, duties which she assumed with unflinching spirit. Fond of responsibility, ambitious of success, and on fire with an ideal of what a teacher might prove for time and for eternity to the children committed to her care, she took no thought of flesh and blood. Seemingly, responsibilities so arduous as these would have been enough to satisfy the most exacting conscience. In Miss Dix's case, however, there was one imperious element of her nature which they altogether failed to content. More and more evident will it grow, as this narrative proceeds, that the sense of pitiful compassion for the ignorant, 
degraded, and suffering was the strongest element in her being. She would work for herself now, for work she must. She would work for her younger brothers till they were ready to go forth and do for themselves. But the moment she should stand free, then beyond all things the nearest and dearest of God's privileges to her would be the championship of the outcast and ready to perish. Soon, therefore, besides the school already taxing to exhaustion her strength, she establishes another in a room over the stable of the Dick's mansion for poor and neglected children. How pitifully she had to plead for permission to do this comes out touchingly in the following letter, so full of the spirit of merciful humanity than first beginning its struggle with that older, inflexible temper of Puritanism, which had submissively waited on adult conversion to repair in an hour the results of years of indifference and neglect. The letter is without date, but belongs early in the school-keeping days. Quote, My dear grandmother, had I the saint-like eloquence of our minister, I would employ it in explaining all the motives and dwelling on all the good, good to the poor, the miserable, the idle, and the ignorant, which would follow your giving me permission to use the barn chamber for a schoolroom for charitable and religious purposes. You have read Hannah Moore's life. You approve of her labors for the most degraded of England's paupers. Why not, when it can be done without exposure or expense, let me rescue some of America's miserable children from vice and guilt? Do, my dear grandmother, yield to my request, and witness next summer the reward of your benevolent and Christian compliance. Your affectionate granddaughter, D. L. Dix. End quote. Like the feeble beginnings in another upper chamber in Judea, this early attempt at stretching out a helping hand to outcast children was to lead on to far-reaching results. The little barn school proved the nucleus out of which, years later, was developed the beneficent work of the Warren Street Chapel, from which, as a center, spread far and wide a new ideal of dealing with childhood. There first was interest excited in the mind of Reverend Charles Bernard, a man of positive spiritual genius in charming and uplifting the children of the poor and debased. With all the love of St. Vincent de Paul in his heart, and a fund of originality and devising happy ways and means, the words of Jesus, Suffer the little children to come unto me, were the very breath of his life. And when the children gladly responded, it was not to find themselves tormented with rigid catechizing and a cast-iron drill, but to be taken into open arms of love, and to be ushered into a new world of beauty and freedom. In the year 1823, Miss Dix began a correspondence 
to be continued at intervals for fifty years with a dear friend, Miss Anne Heath, of Brookline, Mass., but for the preservation of which no adequate picture could be drawn of the early womanhood of the young teacher. It is to an endeared few alone that personalities of the inborn reticence of Miss Dix are ever able to reveal their inner life. And yet, so very great is oftentimes the contrast between the maturer bearing of characters marked by commanding practical ability and the life of the same persons in the romantic period of youth, that, but for some such revelation, the hiding place of their power would go unsurmised. Indeed, the standing marvel of psychological history lies in the imperceptible steps by which so often the sighs and tears of sentimental feeling lead on to the masterly self-control and disciplined strength of advancing years. These letters furnish, then, but one more illustration of the fact that a certain even perilous excess of sensibility will be found at the root of all natures that ever achieve anything high and heroic in life. Emphatically did all this hold true of the youth of the subject of this biography. Self-repressed and self-mastered as later on she outwardly fronted the world, inwardly her soul was in those days full to the brim of passion and heartbreak of poetic enthusiasm and religious exultation in truth for some years to come the chief faults of her character are directly traceable to this her demands on herself her demands on her friends her demands on her pupils were out of all bounds she herself must be pure spirit, taking no counsel of flesh and blood. Her friends must be incarnations of every attribute of intellect and every grace of soul. In her pupils she must detect, in embryo at least, the prophecy of the coming ideal mothers and saintly helpers of the world. And so the inevitable reaction from such overwrought expectations was subjection to hours of bitter dissolution and even of passionate, unjust censure of average, commonplace mortality. As tending to foster excess of sentimental feeling, it is here of importance to note the habit, in those days indulged in by young women, of voluminous effusive correspondence with one another. Their letters, without date and without distinct reference to anything in time or space that would enable a future bewildered biographer to affix to them a local habitation and a name, wandered off into realms of purely subjective poetry, philanthropy, philosophy, and religion. And yet, what intensity of inward life these letters reveal. Anything was enough to start one of them. The death of an infant. A peculiarly beautiful sunset. A new volume of poetry. 
an inspiring or heart-searching passage in the sermon of the previous Sunday. And then would they roll on through literally continental sheets of paper to all the length and with all the volume of the Mississippi. Far easier is it to give an idea of the character of these letters by example than by description. The method of illustration by extracts is of course exposed to the danger of conveying entirely erroneous impressions of brevity. Nonetheless, it may impart a sense of the spirit of these copious interchanges of thought and feeling. First, then, let the following serve as a commentary on the intensity with which poetry was in those days read by passionate young women those days of comparatively few books, in which a new poet was a fresh visitant from the celestial sphere. The L.E.L., to whom reference is made, is Letitia Elizabeth Landon, a young Englishwoman, whose strains of tender melancholy and romantic sentiment were marked by a degree of real power, which under severer training might have given her a permanent place in literature. The letter from which the extract is made was written to Miss Heath near midnight, presumably in 1823. Quote, Dear Annie, You say I weep easily. I was early taught to sorrow, to shed tears, and now... When sudden joy lights up or any unexpected sorrow strikes my heart, I find it difficult to repress the full and swelling tide of feeling. Even now, though alone and with no very exciting cause of joy or grief, I am paying my watery tribute to the genius of L.E.L. Oh, Anne! She is a poetess that expresses all the genius and fire of Byron, unalloyed with his gross faults. All the beautiful flow of words, which fall like music on the air from the pen of Moore, without his little less than half-concealed consciousness. All the simplicity of Wordsworth, without his prosiness and stiffness. Finally, in the words of her reviewer, if she never excels what she already has written, we can confidently give her the assurance of what the possessor of such talents must earnestly covet, immortality. The improvisatress will soon be published in this country, and then, Anne, prepare for the enjoyment of this rich feast. I worship talents, almost. I sinfully dare mourn that I possess them not. It is not that I may win the world's applause that I would possess a mind above the common sphere, but that I might revel in the luxury of those mental visions that must hourly entrance a spirit that partakes less of earth than heaven. I shall try to feel and to act better but I cannot cease to lament. Good night, Thea. No one can read a letter like this, crude as it is in expression, a letter written at midnight, her only hour of leisure, 
by a young woman who, in ill health, was bearing so exhausting a burden without feeling the fierce pulse-beat of an inspiring nature, which read poetry not for pastime, but for dear life, not for the diversion of an idle hour, but for refuge in a realm of ideality and for solace to its passionate yearning after a wider, richer experience. Again and again, in this correspondence with Miss Heath, there breaks out the cry of loneliness and heart-hunger. The strain of each day's work, in itself severe enough, was made all the more exhausting by the additional tasks a mind incapable of rest was forever imposing on itself. Rising before the sun and going to bed after midnight, steadily bent on supplementing the defects of an imperfect early education, at work on textbooks like her Science of Common Things, which ultimately went through sixty editions, and the fundamental data of which she had to learn as she wrote them down. Inevitably there set in that physical exhaustion of body and brain out of which no further response is to be had but by plying whip and spur. There was no joy in the house, no refuge in a merry, loving home circle, no leisure from ever-pursuing cares. Thence the hungry void in her heart which led her often to write in a strain like this. Quote, Anne, my dear friend, if ever you are disposed to think your lot an unhappy one or your heart desolate, Think of her whose pathway is yet more thorny and whose way is cheered by no close connections. You have an almost angelic mother, Anne. You cannot but be both good and happy while she hovers over you, ministering to your wants and supplying all that the fondest affection can provide. Your sisters, too, they comfort you. I have none. End quote. As early as 1824, it was becoming doubtful whether the young teacher would have health enough to permit of her carrying through the scheme on which she had embarked with such energy. Symptoms of lung congestion, with tendency to hemorrhage, were becoming marked. Her voice, remarkable through later life for purity, sweetness, and depth, was growing weak and husky. She was fast contracting a stoop of the shoulders, and her frequent attitude, as she stood to conduct her classes, was that of supporting herself with one hand holding on to the desk and the other pressed hard to her side as though to repress a sharp pain. Over the future hangs a veil which mortal eyes may not essay to penetrate. She now writes her friend, Miss Heath. But we may trust in the Lord and be of good courage. Of good, of heroic courage, she always was. It was never her will that flinched, but only the body that from time to time dropped prone to the ground. Indeed, it is scarcely without a half 
sympathetic smile that one can read such self-reproachful goadings of an already overtaxed mind and body as this. Quote, there is in our nature a disposition to indulgence, a secret desire to escape from labor, which, unless hourly combated, will overcome and destroy the best faculties of our minds and paralyze our most useful powers. Protracted ill health is often suffered to become the ally of this hidden disposition, and there is hardly anything so difficult to contend with and conquer. I have often entertained a dread lest I should fall a victim to my besieger, and that fear has saved me so far. Nonetheless, even she was before long forced to yield, and for the next two or three years to spend her time largely in efforts to establish her health. The sharpest pang of this necessity lay in the separation it involved from the charge of her younger brothers, of one of whom she writes to Miss Heath, quote, Oh, Anne, if that child is but good, I care not how humble his pathway through life. It is for him my soul is filled with bitterness when sickness wastes me. It is because of him I dread to die. I know I should have more faith. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is the betrayer. End quote. Happily for the future of Miss Dix, she had by this time won the respect and love of several very influential people in Boston. Chief among these was the celebrated divine, Dr. William Ellery Channing, who evidently clearly understood alike the admirable and the dangerous points in her nature, and frankly counseled her. Quote, I look forward to your future life, he on one occasion wrote, not altogether without solicitude, but with a prevailing hope. Your infirm health seems to darken your prospects of usefulness, but I believe your constitution will yet be built up, if you will give it a fair chance." You must learn to give up your plans of usefulness as much as those of gratification to the will of God. We may make these the occasion of self-will, vanity, and pride as much as anything else. May not one of your chief dangers lie there? The infirmity which I warn you of, though one of good minds, is an infirmity. It is said that our faults and virtues are sometimes so strangely interwoven that we must spare the first for the sake of the last. If I thought so in your case, I would withhold my counsel, for your virtues are too precious to be put to hazard for such faults as I might detect. End quote. One fortunate outcome of this relation with Dr. Channing was an invitation to undertake the education of his children for six months of the spring and summer of 1827. This 
happily removed her from the bleak climate of Boston to the softer air and charming scenery of Narragansett Bay, where, in Portsmouth, Rhode Island, at the distance of a few miles from Newport, his birthplace, Dr. Channing had a country seat. Her duties were light, she could be much in the open air, and at last her passion for hero-worship found satisfaction in close intimacy with an actual human being so exalted in intellect and saintly in character that the more nearly she came in contact with him, the deeper grew her veneration. Already no mean proficient in botany, and with a lively interest in all departments of natural history, the flowers, seaweeds, shells, and general marine life of the beautiful region exercised a fascination over her that drew her away from inward conflict and gave a healthier objective tone to her mind. When the engagement terminated in October, Dr. Channing wrote her, quote, You have no burden of gratitude laid upon you, for we feel that you gave at least as much good as you received. We will hear no more of thanks, but your affection for us and our little ones we will treasure up among our precious blessings. I wish to say to you that if you should think another summer's residence on Rhode Island would be beneficial to you, Mrs. Channing and myself would be glad to engage your services for our children. I dare not urge the arrangement, for I have an interest in it. For several successive winters, now, pulmonary weakness compelled Miss Dix to seek refuge from the severe winter climate of New England, in Philadelphia, and in Alexandria, Virginia. She kept herself busy with reading of a very multifarious kind, poetry, science, biography, and travel, besides eking out the scanty means she had laid by from her teaching by writing stories and compiling floral albums and books of devotion. The effect of illness was rarely to depress her spirits. Indeed, it must here be emphasized as a marked characteristic of her at once heroic and devout nature that suffering not only rallied to the front her powers of resistance, but actually induced a state of high spiritual exaltation. Throughout her whole future career, this will be strikingly apparent. Very interesting is it, then, to read in the two following extracts from letters written while away in the South to Miss Heath, her own clear recognition of this constitutional trait. Quote, Dear Annie, I am never less disposed to sadness than when ill and alone. Sometimes I have fancied that it was the nature of my disease to create a rising, elastic state of mind, but be that as it will, I speak solemnly, the hour of bodily suffering is to me the hour of spiritual joy. It is then that most I feel my dependence on God and his power to sustain. 
It is then that I rejoice to feel that, though the earthly frame decay, the soul shall never die. The discipline which has brought me to this has been long and varied. It has led through a valley of tears, a life of woe. It is happiness to feel progression and to feel that the power that thus aids is not of earth. End quote. Again, as presenting a vivid picture of how quickly any vision of sublimity or beauty, whether in the physical or the moral world, would lift her above bodily suffering into a state of transport and adoration. The following extract from a letter of this period is highly characteristic. Quote, Last night, dear Annie, I could not sleep, and after several restless hours rose at one o'clock, wrapped myself warmly in my flannel gown, and was in search of my medicine when the remarkable clearness of the sky drew me to my window. There was Orion, with his glittering sword and jeweled belt, Aldebaran, the fiery eye of Taurus, Saturn, with his resplendent train of attendants, and the sweet Pleiades. There, too, flamed Canicula and Prussian, beneath whose rival fires the beautiful star of evening had long since sunk from view. Leo, with his glorious sickle, followed in the train, and thousands on thousands of starry lamps lent their brightness to light up the vast firmament that canopied the silent earth. Silent, for sleep had exerted its restoring influence upon all save the sick and sorrowing. I turned reluctantly again to seek my weary couch with feelings of gratitude to my God for all his past goodness and humble trust in his future care, I laid my head on my pillow, and though I could not sleep, could meditate. A more striking piece of unconscious self-portraiture could hardly be quoted than this. The image of that frail young woman rising on a cold winter night from her bed, exhausted with coughing and the sharp pain in her side, to seek her medicine, and suddenly finding relief in the sublime pageant of the midnight heavens and in the adoration of the God whose glory it declared. This image, indelibly stamped on the mind, will give the keynote to a life that was destined to be a perpetual rising from pain and weariness to the beholding of a vision so transcendent in promised blessing for humanity as to inspire her with fairly supernatural strength. But not yet was her day of stern training over. Still farther must she learn to endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ still farther to school an impatient and indomitable will to wait on the ordination of a higher power. End of chapter 2